0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. This is what Timothy Ballard, founder of Operation Underground Railroad, says about human trafficking. This is a plague in our society today, he says. There's more slaves today, 27 million, than ever existed during the transatlantic slave trade. It's a huge problem. We're going to talk about human trafficking, sex trafficking on the program today, exploited women and girls, and we're going to ask you, we put this question out to our Public Insight Network and got some responses. We're going to ask you as well, do you think it's a problem in Utah? And do you have any insight on this, any experiences you'd like to share? We'd love to have uh, you do that at 1-800-826-1495. Our email is access at gmail.com, and we are on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. You can join our Public Insight Network as well. Go to upr.org, click Become a Source on the top of the page there. We uh, welcome in Andrea Powell, who is uh, founder and executive director of Fair Girls. That's a nonprofit organization that serves survivors of trafficking in the U.S. and other countries, such as Russia, Serbia, Bosnia, and Uganda. Last year, for one example, Fair Girls supported more than 100 young girl and transgender female victims to escape trafficking and commercial sexual exploitation in the Washington, D.C. area, where the organization is founded. Andrea Powell, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And we should mention Andrea Powell is uh, coming to Logan uh, on Tuesday of next week. Uh, a, a visit to Logan sponsored by the USU Center for Women and Gender. She'll be speaking uh, to, uh, to you if you're able to be in the area, all free and open to the public, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, Library one, Room 101 on the USU campus. We welcome in as well uh, Stephanie Henry. Uh, her book is If Only I Could Sleep, a Survivor's Memoir. Uh, She was sexually abused throughout her childhood, and uh, to grant some control, she began a struggle with bulimia and uh, slipped through the education system after multiple suicide attempts, years of working as a stripper, losing custody of her daughter. uh, She put her life back on course by reaching out to others and fighting for victims of exploitation around the world. Stephanie Henry, welcome to the program. Um, Let me begin with you, Andrea Powell. we put this, this uh, out to the our Public Insight network and uh, got some responses. One of our questions was, how would you define human trafficking in your own words? Uh, so here's what Paul Williams in West Valley City said. He said, forcing anyone to do something that they do not want to do that is illegal. Laird Hamilton in Hamblin rather in Salt Lake City says, uh, exploiting others, requiring someone against their will through force, fear, or coercion to do something. And uh, we got this response from Tracy Perry in West Valley City. She says slavery. That's just how she uh, uh, defies it. How would you define human trafficking?
1: Well, first of all, you have some um, pretty engaged and and educated uh, listeners. I have to say Uh, we we always get interesting responses to that question um, when we talk to teens and youth uh, here in the D.C. area and throughout the country. But the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, which was passed in the year 2000, um, defines human trafficking really in two terms. You have, um, you have sex trafficking, which is the force, fraud and coercion of adults into commercial sex acts. Or um, in the case of children, you don't have to prove that someone forced or tricked them by the fact that they're a child. Um, and then you also have labor trafficking, which is any type of labor uh, where someone is being forced, frauded, or coerced. But I really like what your one... Um, respondent said is that bottom line, human trafficking is modern-day slavery, and we have more people enslaved in the world today than we ever have had in human history, so it's not just a periphery problem, but something that impacts every community.
0: And I think this is sort of bubbling up in in the consciousness, uh, but I learned some things in preparing for this program I think there's still a ways to go. This is a huge problem. I don't know if, if, if the word has gotten out there.
1: Well, I think that we've made considerable progress um, in the last 10 years, um, which is about as long as I've been in, in working on the issue of anti-trafficking. But much like you would look at the issue of domestic violence 40, 50 years ago, the issue of human trafficking and how we're addressing it is, is evolving. So 10 years ago, if you said that A American teenage girl could be sold into sex trafficking, even other anti-trafficking advocates might be shocked or say that that can't be true. And now that's something that that we really generally accept as as a part of the issue. Um, Just on the other side, too, you know, the types of remedies and support that we can offer victims is evolving as foundations and government supporters recognize this isn't something that just happens to a few but it's happening to upwards of 20,000 individuals brought into the country every year and hundreds and thousands of individuals within this country.
0: Is this, is this a problem of people being brought into this country for this purpose, or um, are U.S. girls and women being forced into this?
1: So it's both, um, and, and whether you are a 16-year-old teenage girl from Salt Lake City or a Bangladeshi man you know, who's 49 years old with a family, um, no one has a right to enslave you. There's, there's, there's no legal right to do that. But um, what we're seeing here in the United States, which really doesn't surprise me, is while there are large numbers of individuals brought into this country under domestic servitude or sex trafficking or other forms of slavery, The majority of the victims that we see through Fair Girls and what I hear from other agencies are, in fact, American citizens. Um, And really that boils down to the fact that traffickers are looking at this as a business. They want to minimize risk and they want to maximize profit. And so going to another country is both expensive and risky because individuals are more likely to identify what you're doing and take action. But if you prey upon someone who's vulnerable in your own backyard, if you will, then you minimize that risk, and you have an opportunity to exploit that person underneath people's noses, and, and nobody finds out. So, so really, I guess the answer to your question is it affects both, but more and more, what people in the movement are seeing is that it does impact American citizens to a profound degree.
0: And that I don't know. Unfortunately, I guess it's human nature. Uh, if it if we're if we see that it impacts U.S. citizens, maybe citizens of Utah, maybe we're more likely to act.
1: Absolutely, and that's completely human nature and, and understandable. But um, you know, I think it's important that as a society we're able to recognize the signs and know where an individual can go to get help or ask questions, so that anyone in that situation has access to getting out and getting safe. Uh,
0: by the way, how did you get into this work?
1: So uh, my organization, Fair Girls, was founded um, a little over ten years ago. I'm one of the co-founders and. I had been studying abroad um, in early college in Germany and met a young lady who had been sold by her parents to a man in his late 60s who was using her as a domestic slave. And over the course of several months, we tried to devise a plan for her to escape, and she was not able to escape and disappeared. And while I don't know exactly what happened to her, I, I don't think it was a good thing Um, So that really inspired me to want to build an organization that empowers young women and girls with the knowledge and resources and support that they need to stay safe or get out. Um, And and one thing I want to say is my friend didn't actually view herself as a slave. She just thought, well, this is what happens to girls like me. This is is a way of life. And so part of what Fair Girls' mission is and and what I believe every day is, is educating people and empowering them with knowledge. Is a critical component to ending this huge
0: human rights violation. One thing I'm reading: a, a couple of Deseret News articles uh, looked at this in in Utah. Um, in fact, uh, KSL Television went uh, undercover, and one thing they're saying that they that uh, nowadays, in fact, they talked to a a woman who is a prostitute in in Salt Lake City, in her fifties. She's been doing this for a decade or so. Uh, a heroin habit she's noticing she says that um that, that the johns that, that the people who consume this are wanting girls more than women nowadays i don't know if you're seeing the, the same thing
1: so i guess to step back and then answer that question so the majority of sex trafficking in the united states today is actually being perpetuated on the internet um, so young women and girls are being lured by pimps and traffickers who are saying they can be your boyfriend, they have a job opportunity, so they're preying upon someone's vulnerability. Um, and then on the other side, pimps and traffickers are selling their victims online in online, you know, sex ads that might look legitimate. So, you know, those who are buying individuals for sex might think that they're buying someone who's willingly engaged, and that potentially could be possible. But of the hundreds and hundreds of girls who we serve here. Um, at Fear Girls and who I've met across the country, I've never met someone who said that this is what they wanted to be doing if they actually had other options or felt safe. Um, You know, I don't know how many of the viewers have seen the movie Taken, but Taken has the storyline of someone being kidnapped and held against their will. But the majority of the girls who we serve, um, the chains that bind them are around fear, shame, and a lack of opportunity. So, um, those who are buying sex are really perpetuating sex trafficking by, by pushing that demand. And, um, you know, using words like John um, or buyer, in some ways don't really define who these people are because if they are, for example, buying a 15- or 16-year-old girl, then then they're a child pedophile. They're, they're a rapist. Um, and so it, it, sometimes it's, it's about, you know, changing that terminology and, and really educating people that this is not a victimless, industry, if you will, or a victimless crime, even though it's online and even though, you know, everything looks virtual, there's real victims and there's real people who are behind that and and they're suffering.
0: Including uh, ads on places like Craigslist, right?
1: Right. Craigslist. um, There's another website that used to be owned by Village Voice Media that's now independent called Backpage.com. Traffickers also use other social media forums, Facebook, Uh, a site called Tags, there's a variety of others, and, um, you know, right now, one of the biggest challenges is, you know, how to balance, um, you know, laws like the Communication Decency Act, which was meant to protect children, but also protect free speech, but also address the fact that traffickers are using these platforms to perpetuate their crimes, and places like Craigslist or Backpage, um, you know, if they're taking money for these ads being posted, then they're actually profiting uh, and becoming sort of the fourth component to, to sex trafficking in the United States.
0: Well, there, there's an obvious, and I know the reasons why perhaps we can't do this, why don't we just shut those things down, bar Craigslist and other sites from running such ads?
1: That is a question that advocacy groups continue to ask and advocate for. Um, you know, we we understand that it's a very nuanced situation, but when you have hundreds of cases being pointed out to a company like Backpage that say this is a minor being sold into sex trafficking or this is a, an adult who is sold against their will and they have case after case and law enforcement showing them cases and they continue to run their business model in the same way, then that, that speaks to negligence and, and really a lack of will. To, to create a business model that keeps people safe. I mean, if we were talking about, you know, Walmart, for example, if Walmart perpetually used a certain type of wood that caught fire and people were dying, we would there would be public outrage, but it's something that people would see, whereas the Internet, again, it, you know, it's hidden. And so that's how these, these websites often get away with it, and part of my organization's effort is, is really to expose this for what it is, which is which is modern-day slavery, and you have the biggest marketplace that the United States has ever seen, and that's online. And and right now, you know, Backpages really um, has the biggest share of that market with upwards of $42 million a year in profit off the buying and selling as individuals.
0: Hmm. We're going to talk more about this. We're going to take a brief break. When we come back, we uh, have managed to get uh, Stephanie Henry on the line, so we'll uh, we'll fold her into the conversation. We're talking with Andrea Powell, who is founder and executive director of Fair Girls. That's a nonprofit organization that serves survivors of trafficking in the U.S. and other countries. And we'll be talking with uh, Stephanie Henry as well. Her book is If Only I Could Sleep, A Survivor's Memoir. Very interesting. We'll bring her to the conversation following the break. By the way, Andrea Powell will be in Logan on Tuesday. Her talk is at 1 o'clock in USU Library Room 101. Her visit sponsored by the USU Center for Women and Gender. We hope to have your comment as well uh, following the break at 1-800-826-1495. Or at UPRaccess at gmail.com, and we're on Twitter at Utah Public Radio. More following the break.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Center for the Arts, presenting country singer-songwriter Sherry Austin, featuring music from her latest recording, Circus Girl, in concert at the Bullen Center Carousel Ballroom, June 27 at 730 Information at casharts.org or 435-752-0026. And by Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan. Open Monday through Saturday until 3, offering plattered cookies and brownies, sandwiches, and boxed lunches. Information at crumbbrothers.com.
1: Waste Not. Studies show leaking faucets and toilets account for as much as 14 percent of all indoor water use. That's 10 gallons per person per day. By replacing an old toilet with a new model, the typical household can save up to 21,000 gallons of water per year.
0: Waste Not is made possible by the Logan City Public Works Water Conservation Department. Information at LoganUtah.org publicworks Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Human trafficking, sex trafficking, exploitation are subjects today. Uh, This is what Timothy Ballard says. He's CEO of Operation Underground Railroad. He says, talking of these topics, this is a plague in our society today. There's more slaves today than ever existed during the transatlantic slave trade. That's a sentiment uh, that Andrea Powell from Fair Girls has echoed. Andrea Powell, uh, Fair Girls, by the way, is a nonprofit organization that serves survivors of trafficking in the U.S. and other countries. It's based in Washington, D.C. Andrea Powell will be in uh, Utah on Tuesday. Her talk is at 1 o'clock in the afternoon in USU Library Room 101. Her visit to Logan is sponsored by the USU Center for Women and Gender. Everyone is welcome to that talk. And uh, we're talking with Andrea Powell. We bring in now uh, Stephanie Henry, whose book is If Only I Could Sleep, A Survivor's Memoir. She works with uh, victims of exploitation around the world as well. Stephanie Henry, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you. I wonder, uh, it's very interesting um, reading about your experiences, very harrowing experiences. Uh, You were uh, sexually abused throughout your childhood by a a grand uncle um, and uh, went on to, to many problems including uh, suicide attempts and bulimia and losing custody of your daughter, got your life back on track, Uh, in part, I guess, by reaching out to others. That's an impulse, it seems like. And I've been reading about uh, some victims of human trafficking in Utah, various media sources. Uh, One woman in particular, Gina, who I'll reference a little bit later, that's how she says she got, you know, uh, empowered, reaching out to others.
3: Mm-hmm, absolutely. You know, one of the things that's kind of crazy is when I do some of these interviews and I listen to the, uh, I guess, the punch list of, of all that stuff, I think, you know, I, besides the fact of being completely blessed and humbled, and, and Andrea, my hat is off to you for fair girls. Um, I looked and researched over that so much in the last week, and that is an amazing organization, so I've already signed up to subscribe and help you out. Um but, you know, this, the one thing I decided to do was just embrace all of what was happening instead of letting the fear keep me hidden and keep me quiet because, you know, I said it in the beginning of my book, I, I can't do any good if I'm quiet. So speaking up has really brought a lot of people to the forefront of speaking up for themselves, and, and that's the blessing. It really is, Tom.
0: I wonder if you could tell the story you tell in your prologue. I believe that's where it is in your book. You're in Rwanda. Mm. And then you have a flashback to, you know, the perpetrator of your crimes against you would would tell you, and I guess this is pretty typical, Uh, he would say, don't tell anyone. If you do, it will be your fault that they're crying. It's your fault that you're so cute, which which is outrageous. But to a child, I I guess that, you know, has an effect.
3: Yes, I I absolutely will talk about that. Um, There's two folds to that story. One's in Rwanda and then later in the book. Um, it also defines uh, that comment when I was working in an elementary school here where I live in north, uh, in north of Dallas and the little girl that was sitting at her desk was acting out very strangely and she would do some really odd behaviors and one of them was she'd take her tiny little, uh, you know, safety scissors and she'd cut off her eyelashes and I noticed on the playground, she was always, like, standing off away from the girls and everything. And you're talking to first grade little girl. And I had a flashback that also happened to me when I was in Rwanda, and I'll get to that, is I went over to her and, and you know, I said, why aren't you playing with the g- little girls, honey, and and just really trying to have a conversation with her. And she said, they keep telling me I'm too cute, I'm too pretty and she goes, I am too pretty. So I went to the counselor that day, and I said, you know, I'm not an expert in this field whatsoever. I just have a feeling. My radar is going off, and I'm having memories about some things, and they did find out that she was, in fact, being molested by her biological father and removed her from the home, so I was really grateful that I listened to, you know, my gut, if you will, and, you know, then I'll fast forward to Rwanda because you know, the the horrible history of the genocide everyone knows about, and being on that place where it happened, and I was working with um, some of these girls that I met, they have an organization called Don't Sell Your Body to the Sugar Daddy, and they wear these bright orange bracelets, and, and it's, a, it's a campus thing, a college campus thing, it's a wonderful thing, because they're trying to educate the girls there, and The men, and I say the men, but the people that want to sell them are really upset about that because the girls are getting educated and they're speaking up and becoming empowered, which is really making a lot of people angry because they're not, you know, vulnerable and weak and for sale anymore. So we were working together and we walked on this place where one of the most horrific uh, historical things happened with the genocide and thousands of people were literally macheted um, children and, and, you know, adults, everybody. And I'm walking through this whole scenario, just without words, I can't even describe, which is what I was trying to do in the prologue, just the voices and the, the ghosts and, of the past and all the different things that really encompass you when you're walking on grounds like this. And I just really thought when I, when I hit one of those classrooms that I described, all these different doors were off of what was supposed to be a school, um, and an elementary school if I remember right. And you walk in and there's literally mummified bodies of, you know, the victims in all of these rooms where they're supposed to be, you know, coloring books and books and and chalkboards and such. And I'm standing there at this horrific sight thinking everybody that has gone through what, you know, what Andrea sees when she's she's restoring all these these girls and these transgender and boys and all the things that even like what I saw in Cambodia – Um, this horror that happens to people obviously causes the trauma, obviously causes things such as PTSD, which is something that I even have. You know, there's a way in which you can embrace that horrible tragedy in hopes that you can go out and do what you can to stop it, which is what we're doing today just by having this interview today on this radio station on your show. It's things like that where you just let go of that fear and go ahead and grasp that nightmare. And that's what I wrote about.
0: Uh, Andrea, I wonder, and I'll get um, Stephanie to comment on this as well. It's so reading um, from, I made reference to this earlier, KSL Television did an um, investigative report on human trafficking, sex trafficking in Utah. By the way, don't, we don't have solid uh, statistical figures, but certainly anecdotal uh, reports that it is a problem in Utah, as it is, I'm sure, in every state. Um, they met a, a woman called uh, Gina, uh, who was a former victim of sex trafficking, uh, who, when her father died, uh, she came under the control of, uh, of, of a man who forced her into, into prostitution. And later on, th- th- this struck me, uh, she says that she uh, even when her, uh, the perpetrator was sent to prison, she says she didn't know there was a different way of life. In fact, when the man uh, was sent to prison, she spent the next 15 years on her own as a prostitute. So that kind of speaks to that, that mindset I think you were talking about earlier, Andrea.
1: Right, and, you know, it's, it's really when you have someone who has been victimized for years who's been conditioned to think that that's who they are, that's what is expected of them, if there is an absence of other resources and, and other real support, sometimes they remain in those situations. And just because someone is now, you know, 35 years old and seemingly willingly engaged in either prostitution or, or another illegal activity that was forced upon them um, during their trafficking situation, that doesn't mean that their victimization wasn't real. Um, in a case that might be similar to what you're discussing here in the D.C. area, there's the a woman who I believe is in her 30s, and if you saw her on the street corners in downtown D.C. on the weekends, you would think that person is there willingly. This is what they do. But what you don't see is that this has been her way of life for 20 years and that she doesn't know where else to go. It's very difficult to walk into even, you know, a CVS or or a Target and say, I'd like to have a job. And when they say, what is your job experience? And you're 28 or 30 and you don't have any that you can – put down on paper, then that can be, you know, very, very daunting. And so it's it's really about breaking down stigma, letting victims know that there are people who are there to help them, and also letting them know that we will meet them wherever they are in that process of recovery. Um, at our organization, you know, we, we work day in and day out with survivors to show them that we know there's going to be ups and downs. We know that it's a very hard process, but we're going to celebrate their successes, and we're going to be here for them regardless, so that they can truly begin to thrive and, and contribute to their own life and, and to others around them as well.
0: Stephanie, what, what's your reaction to Gina's story? Does that resonate with you? This, uh, I'm, and at, at first, her perpetrator would beat her and it'd keep her in this, but I, I guess you'd just get beat down and, and you you see yourself this way. That's that's why Gina went on for years after her perpetrator went to prison.
3: Yeah, you know, I, I actually can relate to a lot of that and. and and forgive me, Andrea, I was saying Andrea, but I'm, you know, I'm from Texas, so I've got that southern-like mispronunciation. Um, you know, the thing about listening to listening to the story of Gina and listening to the story that Andrea was just talking about reminds me of uh, one of the things that I talk to, you know, groups about all the time, and that's regression. And, you know, a woman asked me, we had a summit two weeks ago, and she said, you know, does your regression finally stop, or how does your regression finally stop? where you realize that you don't have to be in those situations. And I said, the regression might weaken. The regression might kind of dissipate, if you will, you know, as I get older, but it's always there. And one of the main things, and I know that that's what they work with at Fair Fair Girls, is that they know and they tell them ahead of time. I'm assuming this is just the most powerful thing that I think happens, even happened for me. They can tell you ahead of time, you know, yes, you're going to heal. Yes, you're going to be empowered. There are choices that you can make to change your life. But understand that your history is your history. And if you understand that your history is your history, which involves some regression at times, and you know that it's there, and you know that it's going to happen again, it actually just it, it keeps you awake. It's kind of like, you know, I know that if I go eat, you know, all of this food, I'm going to weigh this much. I know that if I go to these places or I put myself in certain situations, that it's going to bring up for me what what I was defined by. When I was exploited, when I was exploited by my, you know, by myself or by people that were beating me or, or, you know, using me or or whatever the case may be. But I tell you, I, I just, I really, really think it's very important for people to understand that. It's not necessarily, and I just speak from my own my own heart about my own personal journey. It's not necessarily that I can, you know, hit myself on the forehead and say I'm healed. It's just that I can embrace everything that has gone on and use it and understand that even though I'm, you know, this somewhat picture of, of, of you know, i don't want to use the word success but i'm just going to say you know i've been successful and the fact that i've gotten out of situations and changed my life and gone down a different road but that i can always remain wearing that coat of i understand Mm -hmm. and i know that that's the most important thing and that's why people are you know people are really really hungry for this awareness they're hungry to hear things like this and, and to see people that are actually, you know, having these amazing organizations or putting even putting books out like, like the one I put out, because it's not that I'm sitting here wallowing in this self-pity run riot. I'm sitting here going, listen, I'm putting my head on the chopping block. I'm going to say this was my truth, and I love it when I see other authors do that. They put it out there, and it's their truth, and it brings other people in front, you know, in front of us to say, thank you so much for saying that. Now I can say it. Does that make
0: any sense at all? Yeah, yes, definitely. Uh, if you just joined us, we are talking about human trafficking, sex trafficking, exploitation. It's been called by some people uh, the plague of our society today. Uh, quoting Timothy Ballard from Operation Underground Railroad, uh, he says there's more slaves today, 27 million, than ever ever existed during the transatlantic slave trade. It's a huge problem We're talking about the problem today. We're asking you if you think it's a problem in Utah and uh, what do you think should be done. We put out a question, by the way, we'll get to this a little later in the program, to our Public Insight Network. By the way, you can join this network. It's a network of uh, just regular people who may have expertise or opinions on subjects and uh, can help out by responding to us or other journalists. And you can go to our website, upr.org, and click on, there's a uh, link at the top of the page there called Become a Source. Our current uh, question, uh, do you think uh, human trafficking is an issue in Utah? We'll make reference to some of our respondents as well. One of, one of the questions we put out, what are your thoughts on legalizing prostitution? What effect would such legalization have on the issue of sex trafficking? We'll uh, get responses from our respondents to our Public Insight Network and from our guests as well. You can join the conversation at 1-800-826-1495 or upraxess at gmail.com. And we are on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio. We'll have more following another break.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU's Anthropology Museum in Old Main, presenting the new exhibit, When I Was a Child, Children and Childhood in Cross-Cultural Perspective, exploring the responsibilities of children in different cultures around the world. Open 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Monday through Friday.
4: BBC BBC. Hello, I'm Ros Akins, welcome to World Have Your Say Coming up on Outlook after the news The Somali journalist who witnessed the murder of his boss Hello, I'm Steve Evans, welcome to Business Daily Coming up, the big fight This is Owen Bennett-Jones with Hour.
0: The BBC is your gateway to the world And this is your BBC
4: station Monday through Saturday afternoons at 3 on Utah Public Radio
0: Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking about human trafficking, sex trafficking on the program today. It's a it's a big problem worldwide. We're asking you if you think it's a problem in Utah. Uh, we've probably answered that question, but if you have an experience um, or, or a response to that or anything else that we've been talking about, we'd love to have you respond at 1-800-826-1495. Our email is upraxis at com, and you can tweet us at Utah Public Radio. By the way, uh, looking for solid numbers, and it's kind of hard to find, but the National Human Trafficking Resource Center, a data breakdown for Utah for 2013, they received 138 phone calls from various areas around the state uh, dealing with this problem, six emails. Uh, In the scheme of things nationwide, that uh, isn't huge. I think we're in the 30s if you rank it by state. Uh, so hard numbers are are hard to come by. But it definitely is a problem. If you talk to law enforcement, it is a problem in Utah. Um, For example, Salt Lake City Police Lieutenant Fred Ross, uh, quoted in the Deseret News, uh, said that uh, he has investigated trafficking cases at truck stops. Uh, Salt Lake City Police Chief Chris Burbank says that it is a problem in Utah, and in fact, in some cases, you can... You could look at the sex trafficking route, often following the same route as drug trafficking, hitting cities along the major interstates like I 70, I 80, and I 15. We're talking with Andrea Powell with Fair Girls. That's a nonprofit organization based in Washington, D.C., and Stephanie Henry, whose memoir is If uh, Only I Could Sleep, a survivor's memoir. So, Andrea Powell, um, how do you get girls and women, transgendered individuals out of? sex trafficking, it could be pretty dangerous, can't it, as illustrated by your experience early on?
1: Certainly. When, when you're looking at the issue of any form of human trafficking, um, but specifically sex trafficking, you have individuals who have multiple people who are profiting off of their exploitation. So you may have you know, a trafficker or a pimp, but you might have other people who are buying them. Uh, people in the hotel industry and other industries who are, you know, benefiting from this. And so getting someone out can be very challenging. Um, at Fairgirls, what we rely upon for the most part is um, educating and working closely with different types of law enforcement so that when they come across a victim, they're able to identify that individual as a victim. Um, and then making a referral to us um, to provide that individual services so Um, That can be through Homeland Security, the FBI, local and state law enforcement, but it can also be through, you know, probation officers who see teenagers who might be deemed, you know, runaway or delinquent, Um, but then after hearing about the red flag, probation officer might identify that that individual is actually potentially a victim, so we can go in and meet with them, meet with that young lady, um, and, and really, you know, see what's going on and see if that's the kind of thing that she's experiencing and what kind of help she might need. Um, In in the winter, Fair Girls opened our first crisis um, apartment, which is basically a a very small apartment that can house four to five girls at a given time, and so uh, when they come to us, they have a safe place to stay, but um, that's a very limited number of individuals when we're talking about, you know, hundreds just in the D.C. area where we're based, but across the country, you know, one of the biggest challenges that service-providing organizations have is not having the ability to provide safe housing and provide stabilizing services, because once someone is is so-called rescued by law enforcement or or others and and referred to Fair Girls or another organization in in Utah, um, they have to be able to get services, and, and it's hard to get a job, and it's hard to rebuild if you don't have a safe place to put your head. Um, so in thinking about how someone's identified, I think it's also important to think about what happens the day after they've been rescued. You know, what, what is that next step? And I think that's the conversation that's, that's starting to happen across the country.
0: Uh, here's an experience from just a case in Utah that hit the news. Uh, a man was accused of holding four women against their will through violence. Court documents say that this man transported his victims from state to state prostituting them through internet ads. And when they got to Salt Lake, one of the women secretly texted her sister, who then called police. Does is that, is, is that sometimes happen to people you work with? How do, how do women, I, I guess they see this as very dangerous and, and that deters them from trying something, but but some women do, do try to get out, I'm sure. Sure. Um, you know,
1: some, some young women and girls um, and, and other victims as well might realize that they need help, that they want to get out, and so one important tool is is the National Human Trafficking Hotline. Uh, so they can call one 888 3737 888 and that is a national hotline where they can get help or get connected to services or learn more about their situation. Um, if if that doesn't work, obviously calling 911. Um, it is key as well, but if they're not quite ready to do that, maybe because they're not really sure if what they're going through is something they can get help for, you can also text um, the national hotline's text number, which is Be Free. Um, and so there are a number of growing resources for individuals, and as we work to educate people, um, such as through this program, then not only potential victims can reach out for help, but those who see things that look odd, you know, for example, you see a neighbor has a, a, a domestic uh, helper who is raking the leaves at 3 o'clock in the morning. and We know that's not normal. Uh, so if you're that neighbor calling the national hotline to make a report and, and just say, hey, something suspicious, that can be something that leads to somebody getting help. Or if you see a teenage girl on the street corner um, or outside of a less than desirable hotel every night late at night as you're driving home from the movies, or from work, or wherever you're coming from, you know, calling about that individual can also potentially save a life. So it's it's about you know connecting victims to potential services, but also the general public understanding their role as bystanders in addressing this problem.
0: So, uh, who, who's best to call? Call call your local police if I see if I saw something suspicious.
1: I would call the National Trafficking Hotline um, okay. or law enforcement if, if that's what. Um, you feel most comfortable with. But the national hotline will take your information, they will see if there's similar information in the database, and then they will connect with either a local or federal law enforcement. Um, It just really depends. I mean, if you see a crime in progress, so for example, I was doing what we call outreach one night, and I saw a trafficker, I thought, shaking his victim outside of a hotel, violently shaking. And so in that case, I called 911. Um, And then later engaged you know, other law enforcement and other folks as well. But uh, if I were to see a girl who I thought, well, I don't know exactly what's going on, but something doesn't seem right, or you see some kids selling candy door to door and it doesn't look like they're with their family, it doesn't look like they're in the right situation, you know, that's a good time to call the national hotline because they can corroborate that information and see if there's other things that can lead to an investigation.
0: Hmm. I'd like to direct this next question to Stephanie Henry. Um, KSL Television, I mentioned, did a, a series on this. They asked uh, Salt Lake City Police Chief Chris Burbank if the problem will ever be solved, if he thought the problem would ever be solved, talking about sex trafficking. And here's how he responded. He says, I'd like to say yes, but again, the demand side is so enormous that's it's very difficult. Until society says we're not going to accept this, absolutely, we're not going to accept this. It will continue. And I wonder what... what you know, looking at it from a society's perspective, the demand side is very, very strong, seems to be growing. You know,
3: um, you're absolutely right, and and that's a really good quote, because in Dallas, uh, the Dallas mayor, uh, Paul uh, Mayor Rawlings did what was called a man-up rally, and we're actually going to copycat that and bring it to uh, the area that I live in, which is just north of Dallas. And what happened is, that you're, I mean, I'm sorry I get a little tongue-tied on this because I have so many different thoughts on it, but what's happening is that we're watching a lot of men come forward and we're, we're watching a lot of really powerful, good men actually make these, you know, the Johns accountable for their actions. And that's all we can do is keep bringing that to the surface you know once a month, um, I started training with this organization that I, I work with in July. It's called the PDI, and it's a prostitution diversion initiative. And it's a sweep, basically. And they go in and just bring everybody to this to this area. And they get to they get to have a choice of whether or not they you know they accept their misdemeanor charge and they get to go into you know rehabilitation or to a safe house or like you know Andrea was talking about the crisis department that's a fantastic idea the demand versus the supply is what I've been fighting in my own head since I got back from Cambodia because when I was there I just kept thinking why won't these girls listen. Why won't these boys listen? They don't have to sell themselves. They don't have to do this. And, and you sit there and you talk to your blue in the face to the supply, and you need to talk to the demand. So one of the things that, you know, I'm, I've got a foundation starting called Activism for Empowerment, and we're discussing uh, curriculum in schools, Tom, to where we start teaching boys and girls at a young age about, you know, certain you know social ramifications of things like this in an age appropriate way so that they understand it but it's a lesson it's like math it's like english it's like history that they need to understand if this has been something that's been historically a problem then it 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 suffices to say that it has to be something that people are educated on good or bad and see what happens in the future for some kind of solution You know, the demand is what I really, really, really personally want to pinpoint, and talking to groups of boys, and I'm getting ready to talk to uh, fraternities on certain college campuses that have asked to hear about this issue, and I think it's fantastic because they're asking. You know, it's sad that the percentage of perpetrators are male, but that's the truth. So why not again just take that, accept that that's the truth, and those are the people we talk to, and the man up rallies that can come together. I mean, talk about Utah, you know, get your local officials, get get everybody in that entire state to come together and have these rallies where they show the good strong men, the very good Johns in the world, and by combating that, I think that's one step in the right direction. Wouldn't
0: you agree? Uh, yeah, certainly. I, I wonder, uh, and I'm guessing Andrea Powell uh, agrees as well, I'd like to, to ask you this the same question. Maybe frame it this way. Uh, Chief Burbank uh, talks about, uh, you know, we'll, we'll still have this problem until as a society we say we're absolutely not going to accept this. And I'm thinking, you know, maybe you go back to drunk driving. Haven't solved the problem, but I think probably we would say we've made progress Uh, through tougher laws, but also through, as a society saying, this is unacceptable.
1: Right. And I think that there has to be kind of a tandem approach. So I'm going to be blunt, but so say you have um, a poster campaign in hotels that say, you know, don't buy women, don't buy girls. Um, If you're a man in a hotel and you're about to do that, you're sitting at your computer, I'm not so sure that poster is going to help you. But I do think that educating young men and boys at an early age is very effective and that's something that we do at Fair Girls. We go inside schools and and detention facilities, church groups, anywhere where we can get access and we work with local organizations and youth to educate boys and girls, show them what human trafficking really is and that it's not something that's just about, you know, penton hoe culture. It's not cool. It's not sexy. It's actually rape and exploitation. And what always surprises me in the, I think, upwards of 10,000 youth who we've educated through our curriculum in the last several years is that it's often the boys who step up first and say, you know, I didn't realize that this is what's really going on. I didn't realize that most of the victims are actually runaway and homeless youth who have nowhere to go, for example. And so that worked really well. And on the other side, for those who are buying sex, you can't have a $250 fine. Like we have here in the D.C. area, we can't have this be a you know a one-shot kind of slap on the wrist. We kind of need to hit them where it hurts. So um, you know, for example, someone who um, buys an individual and they're arrested by law enforcement takes their car, you know, because that's going to be pretty hard to explain to the wife where the car went. But a $250 fine is going to be something they can get away with. So you know, as punitive as that sounds, I think that has to work in tandem with that education because there can be real male leadership, as Stephanie's saying, Uh, but we also have to address this from the law enforcement side and show them that we're not going to tolerate this behavior, whether it's in Logan, Salt Lake, Austin, D.C., or wherever we are, this is not something that that we as a society are going to say is okay.
0: I'd like to address this question, I promised we would, of um, thoughts on legalizing prostitution. Uh, I'd like to go first to our respondents from our Public Insight Network. By the way, you can join this network. By going to upr.org and clicking on, there's a tab at the top that says "Become a Source." Uh, so here is what Paul Williams said. He's in, uh, I believe, in West Valley City. He says prostitution has been called a victimless crime. I think legalizing it would make the conditions much better for those who could choose to offer them who choose to offer themselves. Forced prostitution should still be considered a crime, but if you legalize prostitution, just like marijuana, it can be regulated by the state. Uh, Laird Hamblin um, says. Um, let's see, says both in both arousal and violence activity within it, talking about prostitution only increases the drive and craving for it. So I think he's not in favor of legalizing prostitution. Tracy Perry says about this, uh, thought, I think prostitution should be legal, but heavily regulated. I think that if prostitution was legalized and regulated, that sex trafficking would go down because there wouldn't be such a high demand for untested, unlicensed prostitutes. People would want to be with licensed prostitutes. Uh, see the solution in most of Nevada. So, Andrea Powell, what what do you think of of that change in in the law? Do you favor it or not?
1: So, just to kind of step back a little bit, I mean, the issue of sex trafficking and prostitution are two distinctive issues because sex trafficking involves that force, fraud, or coercion of an adult um, or the exploitation of a minor, whereas prostitution itself is, is a crime um, in those in states and in those areas. When we're talking about how those two come together though, um, there's a couple of interesting approaches that I think society and communities can consider, um, one of which is, is a model that was developed in Sweden. Um, and what they did was they legalized the selling of sex, but they criminalized the buying of sex. And so that probably sounds Pretty weird. Um, but what that does is it ensures that those who are being victimized, those who are already in vulnerable situations, aren't being further victimized, but that those who are perpetuating the crime, whether that's those who are buying or those who are hence, are being held accountable and aggressively prosecuted. Um, so that approach has proven to be pretty effective. Um, whereas the Netherlands legalized prosecution, similar to what you, know, you, were, you were just suggesting. And what they were seeing, um, according to law enforcement, is, is generally a very hard time discerning who was willingly engaged in prostitution and who was actually a victim. And they actually saw an increase in foreign national women being brought into the Netherlands uh, for the purposes of prostitution, and not being able to distinguish if they're victims, you know, disabled them from getting assistance. And so I really caution. The legalizing of, of, of prostitution without really thinking through, you know, what are the ramifications of, of how victims would be identified, um, and I think that the Swedish Swedish model um, is, is definitely something to consider. But again, the issues of, of prostitution and sex trafficking are definitely distinctive and that one um, is is a crime that that is akin to modern day slavery, and the other is is a crime that is really you know, quite distinctive that that person is not being victimized. Um, one statistic I wanted to point out is that the average age of entry into a life of sexual exploitation or prostitution is 13 years old in the United States. Hmm. And I'm guessing that your viewers would, would not think a 13-year-old has the ability to decide to be involved in that situation. And so if that's the average age, then that means most of those adults who are involved in any form of the sex industry we didn't start out doing it willingly. And we get back to that same question we had earlier in the show of, well, how do you get out if that's been what's been happening to you for years?
0: We uh, just have about 30 seconds left. Uh, Stephanie Henry, I wonder what uh, a very brief comment you would, uh, you would say to, to close this subject.
3: It sounds like um it sounds like a bait and catch thing, you know, which in, in my opinion maybe that's one of the solutions and when Andrea was talking about, you know, legalizing the selling and criminalizing the buying, you can bait them by, you know, having the Johns, you know, show up for the buying and then, you know, nip it in the butt, if you will. That you know, that age thirteen years old is, is a really powerful it's a powerful time. That was the age in which I was raped. And, you know, I've met a lot of people that age, and then they've gotten into the exploitation and the selling um, based on the fact that they just, you know, run from their past. But I, I tell you, there's got to be solutions and whatever they can do. But law enforcement is huge, and I absolutely agree with all of that. You've yeah. got to make the demand pay.
0: Okay. We'll leave it there. out of time. Uh, Stephanie Henry has joined us. Her book is If Only I Could Sleep, a survivor's memoir. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you very
0: much. And Andrea Powell is with uh, Fair Girls. You can find more at fairgirls.org. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you.
0: And Andrea Powell will be in uh, Utah, Library Room 101 on the USU campus, Tuesday, 1 p.m., sponsored by the USU Center for Women and, Women and Gender. Thanks for listening. Commentator,
4: Thad Box. Politicians wanted to take our public lands ad hoc militias gathering to support an outlaw Calvin, and county officials illegally riding ATVs on sacred ground tells us that public land issues today are not just overgrazing, resource extraction, or rehabilitation of damaged lands. Utah politicians are making noises about who owns the land, increasing state revenues, and moving the people's land into private ownership. Let's look at the record. Land exploitation began when European settlers arrived on this new continent. Conquering the wilderness was an honorable goal. Natives were killed, forest cuts, land plowed, and ranges overgrazed. Public policy was to sell the land, get rid of it, and then tax it. But in Utah, most of the low-producing land had no buyers. It was used in common. Open land, once a blessing, when abused, became a curse. To become a state in 1896, Utah adopted a constitution. Article 2, Section 2 says, The people inhabiting this state do affirm and declare that they forever disclaim all right and title to unappropriated public lands lying within the boundaries hereof. History tells us that the common land without restrictions leads to degraded ecosystems that harm people living nearby. The Wellsville Mountains tell us that poorly managed private land can be improved by putting it in public ownership. And the land grant college systems tells us that focusing education and research on local problems pays big dividends, not only locally, but worldwide. History also tells us that public lands properly managed strengthen communities near them. Neither states, corporations, nor individuals can take public land from we the people without an act of Congress signed by the President of the United States. So for the time being, we can hunt deer or picnic by a mountain stream and thank our fellow co-owners back east for contributing their taxes for our pleasure. This is Thad Box.